This administration is willing to engage, use diplomacy, but they're willing to confront. And they have proven that already. I think they're kind of in the mode of, if Obama was plan A, their plan B is to just try harder at plan A. Uh, I don't see a lot of differentiation. Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. You just heard retired General Jack Keane and retired Admiral James Stavridis speaking in conversation about the Trump administration and the Middle East 100 days after taking office and on the eve of the president's first foreign trip to Saudi Arabia and Israel. The Washington Institute hosted General Keane and Admiral Stavridis for a keynote conversation at our 2017 SORAF Symposium on Middle East Policy in Washington, D.C. on May 9. They spoke with Institute Executive Director Robert Satloff before an audience of policymakers and journalists. We'll hear the full, wide-ranging conversation between these two intimate observers of the Trump administration after this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. Jack Keane is a retired general and former vice chief of staff of the United States Army. James Stavridis is a retired admiral in the United States Navy who served as NATO's supreme allied commander. Robert Satloff is executive director of the Washington Institute and Howard P. Berkowitz chair in U.S. Middle East policy. He's the first voice you'll hear, followed by General Keane and then Admiral Stavridis. What has surprised you most about President Trump's first hundred days when it comes to his engagement in the Middle East? General Keene. Well, first, uh, let me thank you for inviting me here. I know uh, Jim and I are sort of substitutes, okay? <laughs> because you really wanted people from the administration here. And, and I got it, all right? And, Dennis Ross called me. I don't know who called you. <laughs> Ross was in a state of panic. But let me let me if let me see if I can we offer. Really you, keep a secret there, General Keene. Hey. <laughs> let me see if I can offer you a word of explanation. At the same time, kind of answer your question. All right. And listen, this is this is a great guy here, and I'm honored to be here with him. And. Given his credentials, the questions are going to be better than the answers, all right? <laughs> but look, this is me, not talking to anybody in the administration, just speculation. The president is having a summit with the leader of Saudi Arabia in a week. And they're working diligently on doing that. And he's also going to Israel. He is absolutely sending a clear message that the historical relationship with the Middle East that President Roosevelt started, and most American presidents up to the last one, I'm going to speak frankly how I feel about things, have kept their promise in backing our allies in the Middle East and backing Israel. He <laughs> the president is committing himself to that and he's sending an unequivocal message, I believe, by this being the first place he's going to visit. And I'll tell you what, I'll say something here, because I did have a discussion with him about the Middle East, 
when we were talking about the Secretary of Defense thing, we got, we got that out of the way, and then we talked about national security a little bit. And he said, you know, take me around the world a little. And his inst instincts, you heard this in the campaign, his instincts about the Middle East is 15 years of war, trillions of dollars we spent, what do we have to show for it, you know, those kind of things. And you know, American people have thoughts like that. But Donald Trump, despite what you think, and, and I didn't really know the man, he listens, he, he's persuaded by alternative ideas that make sense to him. So if he had that view then as the president-elect, and I'm not suggesting I changed his view. I mean, I, I told him why I thought we needed to be engaged in the Middle East. But he is surrounded by advisors who also share that view. So here we are. The first visit that the president of the United States is making is to the Middle East. He knows full well that Iran is trampling over our interests in the Middle East and those of our Sunni allies. And if you're speaking to any of those allies out in the Middle East, what they have gone through in these last eight years, they have lost trust in the United States and in our reliability. So he's sending an unequivocal message to them that the Middle East matters, the global economy still runs on oil out of the Middle East, and he also knows that Russia is trying very aggressively to intervene in the Middle East. They have arms deals with most of the Sunni Arab countries. They want to build nuclear power plants throughout the Middle East. Al-Sisi is about to sign a deal you know, for, four, for four power plants. The Russians are on the ground in the Sinai, assisting Al-Sisi the way we did for 35 years in the United States. It goes on and on and on. The fact of the matter is, this is about renewing and strengthening a relationship. And the fact that he chose the Middle East as his first place to go to do that and also to strengthen the relationship with Israel, which he believes, and I think the Israelis believe, was not what it should have been these last eight years, that is a fundamental surprise to me. But I'm absolutely enlightened by it and delighted by it. Okay, thank you. So, Admiral? What surprised you when you look at the first 100 days? Well, first of all, again, I want to just say thank you. I know Rob selected me because he wanted someone that was as short as he was on the stage, <laughs> kind of balance the general here. I feel very safe, by the way, next to General Keene, who I know could uh, beat up anybody in the room if necessary. Um, sir, it's great to be with you, and I've admired General Keene for a decade or two. So thanks for inviting me. Um, what surprised me, and I'll, I'll just kind of play off what General Keene said, and I agree broadly with his comments, I'm pleasantly surprised, A, at the quality of the team he has put together. Because President Trump didn't have a big bench. He didn't know a lot of people in the foreign policy world. He had not spent a couple of decades building a squad of people who were ready to come into office with him. But I think to General Keene's point, he was willing to look across the spectrum, and I was incredibly enthusiastic about his ultimate selection of uh, Jim Mattis, who, uh, again, acknowledging that I think General Keene would have done terrific in that role, um, particularly for the Middle East, you cannot find somebody 
a former Central Command commander, someone who's really devoted a great deal of his career to operations on the ground in this region. Uh, so fantastic pick. Um, Rex Tillerson, I did not know as well. I'd met him a couple of times, but um, look at the breadth of his experience and the complementary way that he fits with someone like uh, Secretary Mattis. And leaving aside uh, General Flynn, who was probably not well suited for that role, shall we say, H.R. Uh, McMaster, brilliant. I mean, truly an exceptional officer. Uh, someone who speaks truth to power, has written books about how to do that. Dereliction of Duty is a masterwork about the war in Vietnam. Um, for him to put that team together uh, in the foreign policy and security zone, I think, uh, speaks volumes about his willingness to pick people that he had no previous connection with. So I give him great credit for that. I'm pleasantly surprised. Second point, I think I am, again, pleasantly surprised that he is, as General Keene says, focusing out of the blocks on the Middle East, and he ought to, because, uh, you know, as the saying goes, we may not be interested in the Middle East. There's a great deal of Middle East fatigue in the country at large, but the Middle East is interested in us. We're not going to be able to avoid it. Um, it's vital not only for the economic piece, but also for um, the cultural connections, the long-term geopolitics, the where it sits in the world. Uh, for all those reasons, we have to focus on it. And on that one, I'm, I'm with Boogie Alon. I, I think it's Iran, Iran, and Iran. And the sooner he gets to that and talking to the Israelis and the Saudi Sunni bloc, the better for us all. So I'm, I'm, again, pleasantly surprised at those two things, and I think we're off to a good start. Okay, very good. Um, so candidate Trump campaigned saying that he had a better plan to defeat ISIS than the Obama administration, though he was going to keep it secret. So far, however, President Trump seems to be more or less implementing the Obama approach to dealing with ISIS, rather than a fundamental switching of gears. Is that a correct observation? Do you see continuity, or do you see profound change, or do you expect some significant change in the overall effort to, as the president says, destroy ISIS? General, I'll start with you over yeah, this. Sure. Well, um, I, th I think your observation is essentially correct. Uh, the problem in, in Iraq, that culmination of retaking Mosul is X number of weeks away. I don't know for sure how, how long it is, but they've, they've secured eastern Mosul and are working on the western part of it in the central part of the city. And, and by the way, that fighting uh, that we really don't get the chance to think about or observe very much is some of the most difficult fighting that you can imagine because you're, you have infantry soldiers um, fighting block by block, building by building, room by room, and there's tunnels that ISIS is using. The, some of the buildings and some of the rooms are booby-trapped, and there's IEDs uh, by the hundreds down the streets that they have to move. So it, it's very deliberate, methodical fighting that takes place in urban fighting is the toughest fighting that infantry soldiers do. And it's at 
very high risk. And they disarm our technology, that is our air power, because they use civilians as shields. And therefore, we're not gonna shoot in areas where we know civilians are. So that is why this is taking so long. One, to preserve the fighting force as much as we can, and that fighting force has certain limitations to it. And two, we don't wanna do harm to civilians. And, and so that eventually will be taken care of. The political equation in Iraq is, is every bit as challenging as the military situation. Um, Ryan Crocker, ambassador to Iraq, and Dave Petraeus, uh, the general, in 2007, were able to convince Nori Maliki, who's a nefarious character, and that's a generous statement, um, that political unity was the survival of Iraq. And they were both excellent at it. Petraeus spent more time working the politics side than he did the military side, to be quite frank about it, because I was there for a lot of it. He had General Ray Odiano, who ran the military side. Not that Petraeus wasn't in it, but he spent most of his time working on the political side of it. And that's because the political unity of Iraq is really the secret sauce to success, keeping the Sunnis enfranchised while you have a Shia-dominated government and also the Kurds involved as well. And all of that broke down, as we all saw, after we left. So that's still a major issue. Militarily, ISIS will be defeated in Iraq. But the political question, are they going to be able to keep the country unified and enfranchise the Kurds and enfranchise the Sunnis as they have demonstrated in the past? That's an open question. And none of us know the, the answer to it. I'm, I've been disappointed in the administration that they, the previous administration, they didn't put in the diplomatic effort to help that in a way that they spent such an extensive diplomatic effort with the Russians over Syria, we have absolutely nothing to show for it. And Secretary Kerry rarely ever visited Iraq. He left it under the purview of the Secretary of Defense, but the issue in Iraq was much more than a military challenge. So that is an open question in Iraq. It remains to be seen. In Syria, I, I agree, in Syria what what our military strategy seems to be, because the president won't talk about it, and I, and I respect that, is that we've, we've, we've never had a ground force in Syria that's capable of retaking the territory that ISIS has, as we've had in Iraq. We've had the Iraqi security forces or the Iraqi army assisted by others, the United States and others to do that. But in Syria, the terrain that al-Baghdadi controls, and by the way, he left Iraq with several hundred fighters in 2012. He was just a small terrorist organization operating inside of Iraq. He saw the opportunity to establish a sanctuary in Syria. So from 2012, when he arrived there, using the internet and some pretty talented people he had, he grew that force to 30,000 that we all saw on television when it invaded Iraq in January of 2014 two years, a little bit less than two years later. A, clearly a remarkable achievement on his part and his most significant strategic decision to move out of Iraq as a terrorist organization, all Iraqis, and go to Syria and become a global organization where Iraqis were in the minority and fighters came from all over the world to become a part of his organization. 
No one has ever grown a terrorist organization as quickly as he has, and it's quite a remarkable achievement. You've got to give him some credit for it, even, even though he's totally repulsive and a barbarian. But, but the point of the matter is, is that in Syria, the lands that they occupy in Syria are Arab lands. And we have selected as our ground force primarily to be something we call the Syrian Democratic Force. And the names of the opposition forces change in Syria, you know, with the rise of the sun and, and its sunset. So the latest name for the last year or so is the Syrian Democratic Force. They, they consist of primarily Syrian Kurds. And they represent about 80% of the force. And it's about 10,000 plus. And another 20% are Syrian Arabs. But the overwhelming number of Syrian Arabs are doing what? They're fighting Assad in the western part of the state. That's where they're involved in, and that's where they started back in 2011 with the revolution against him. So the problem is we don't have an Iraqi army to retake the territory that ISIS has in Syria. We only have the Syrian Kurds. Here's the problem with the Syrian Kurds. One is it's Arab land, and if they retake it, the political end state is unacceptable because the Arabs are not going to put up with it. And that is a serious problem, which leads to sectarian violence. So how did we get here? Now, I'm being critical here, all right? We got here because I think our soft guys, who are great guys, special operation forces, excuse me, they knew that the Syrian Kurds will fight, and they're coachable and trainable. And by doing so, they got hooked to them because they were looking around for somebody who's willing to fight and had the right kind of numbers. So tactically, it makes sense. But strategically, it makes no sense because the end state is politically unacceptable. You conduct military operations to achieve political end states that are acceptable to you, and this is an unacceptable political end state. The president has made a decision this week to further arm the Syrian Kurds. The other problem we have with the Syrian Kurds is Erdogan from Turkey. He sees the Syrian Kurds as a terrorist organization. They're called the YPG. And he sees them in, in a major land grab that the Kurds are certainly are interested in that would further jeopardize his sovereignty. So he's actually bombed the Syrian Kurds. Now think about this. He has bombed the Syrian Kurds, who we are, our special operation forces are assisting, this is a complicated problem, to say the least. Now, the president is meeting with Erdogan here in about 10 days or so, and, and hopefully they'll be able to discuss this thing. I know what Erdogan's going to say is you've got to back off the so-called YPG or Syrian Kurds, but the, I believe we're committed to it, and we're going to go forward. And I, I, I don't think it's the right answer, to be frank. Um, the better answer, I believe, uh, would be and you may not like it, but it's, it, it's the thought that I have, and, and my institute at ISW has it as well, is that we bring in some Syrian Arabs who have been willing to get in, not Syrian Arabs, but regional Arabs who have been willing to get into this fight. The Jordanians, the Saudis to a lesser degree, the Emiratis, etc. They become the ground force, but they would want us to lead it, and they would want us to put some skin in the game, and we'd have to have put some modest forces in there. 
and then the Syrian, the, the regional Arabs would occupy that land. I think it's a better political end state than the way we're heading, and so I'm, I'm a little disappointed in the direction we're going. It's going to take some time to take down this urban center, and militarily, eventually they will, but politically we're going to be challenged by it, and we're going to have, I think, sectarian violence you know, as a result of it. So, um, Admiral, uh, the general just outlined an alternative that would have been, I guess, a different approach, perhaps the secret plan. It looks like the president is going with more or less a, a similar continuity from where we were under the Obama administration. Is this going to succeed, do you think? No, I don't. Um, I'll give you three things that I think are different in terms of how they're going after the plan. And I, I think they're kind of in the mode of if Obama was plan A, their plan B is to just try harder at plan A. Uh, I don't see a lot of differentiation. Uh, but three things they're doing differently. One is they, I think they will be more aggressive. They'll be more inclined to deploy troops. I think you'll see an increase in the special operations forces in Syria. I think you'll see an increase in the number of uh, U.S. trainers, mentors in Iraq. And I think uh, we will probably also see uh, an increase, and this is ancillary, but an increase in the number of troops in Afghanistan, for example. So I think you'll see a more aggressive posture. Secondly, and I think this is very important, I think that President Trump will let the commanders on the ground take more military action. In my view, that's a good thing. And uh, General Mattis, of course, is, is on this kind of cusp between being a civilian leader now, but someone with enormous uh, combat ground experience. And he will be, because of his military background, he will also, he, General Mattis, will be inclined to let the commanders on the ground take action and move out. And, and I think that will be also helpful as you try and push on this new plan. And then thirdly, I think I sense, and we'll know more, General Keene's exactly right, we'll know more after these conversations with President Erdogan, after the trip to Israel, after the trip to Riyadh, we'll know more about the, and also about, we'll know more after the NATO summit on May 25th, about whether this administration will really push our allies to get into this fight with us. Um, having said all that, I agree with General Keene, we need a new plan, we need a new approach. Um, I think that pushing hard on plan A, if plan B is to just push it harder, I don't think it's gonna get us there. I like what General Keene is suggesting, I'm gonna add one other thought to it, which is if you look back to the Balkans, which General Keene and I are old enough to remember, um, you'll recall that ultimately we had to impose a top-down solution, and, and this is kryptonite. This is perhaps a dramatic idea, but we ought to at least consider whether or not Syria needs to be partitioned. Now, that is a dangerous path to go down, but in the end we solved the Balkans by partitioning them. And I'm not prepared tonight to say that's the solution set, but the idea of an Alawi West, a Sunni center, and dare I say it, a Kurdish enclave in the East, I think that's at least worth exploring. My point, however, is we need new thinking, new ideas about ground forces, new ideas about policy and diplomacy, 
Um, simply pushing harder on plan A, I don't think is gonna get there. And in that sense, I agree with General Keene. So, so l let me ask you about certainly one new idea. I'll start with you, Admiral, on this. One new idea that the president has injected into this equation, and that's America's own use of force. And we saw the president launch mm -hmm. missiles against Syria, uh, the use of chemical weapons. Um, how do you interpret this? Was this a narrow response to CW? Was it the first step of a broader effort? Was it a message to somebody perhaps half a world away? How do you interpret this? I think it was an appropriate, proportional response to the use of chemical weapons, A, and correct under international law and the laws of war. I think B, it was a signal about willingness to use force that you could put in parallel to the Obama administration's failure to enforce the red line on chemical weapons. And we don't need to rewind that whole movie tonight, but we'd be in a very different place, I think, had that been enforced in some sense. So I think there was a symbolic component that very directly played to the failure of the Obama administration uh, to move against chemical weapons. And thirdly, it made tactical sense to go after this particular enclave um, and take out 20% of the air capability. However, it is not a big move. It does not bespeak uh, launching a new initiative. And I think it, it's actually a relatively conservative move. I agree with it, but I think it is not sufficient to really move the equation forward. Another way to think of it is, we used to talk about uh, Theodore Roosevelt um, kind of speak softly, uh, carry a big stick. Um, I think there's a little bit of speak loudly and carry a small stick here. Um, I think that we're gonna need more stick uh, in the Middle East if we're gonna actually get something done. More stick, all right. General, how do you view the, uh, the president's decision to to use force in this case. Yeah. You know, I think certainly it was the right thing to do to, to deal with that kind of repulsive behavior, and it should have been done in 2013, to be sure. It's sad commentary that it, that it was not. I mean, I thought it was morally reprehensible that we didn't respond to something like that. But it, you know, there's something here that's, that's an intangible that, that's greater than the very limited military act. And, you know, um, John Kerry, when he was Secretary of Defense in January 2014, frustrated by the Syrian situation and frustrated, I think, you know, in a way by his president because he, he, he believed he had no leverage with the Russians anymore. He, he was out of arrows in his quiver. You know, he had no diplomatic leverage. And this is post-2013 when we didn't respond to the chemical attack. So Dave Petraeus show up on a, his house on a Sunday night and he's, he's looking for some military options that are still available in January 2014 for the single purpose of giving me some leverage with the Russians to work towards a political solution. This is before the Russians intervened in 2015. And so we laid out a number of options for him and, and took him through high end, low end and the rest of it. And, and I told him at the end that it's, it's unlikely he's going to get 
any of these approved, but he did get one approved. We recommended a covert operation to him, which, which he did get approved. It's been in public spaces dealing with tow missile systems to some of the Syrian moderates. But I only mention it to you because here we have a diplomat who's trying to achieve a political end state through diplomacy, and he knows that he needs some leverage to do that. And he needed a limited military option. What, what Obama always gave us was all-out war or nothing. And here's a secretary of state who wants just a little bit of something to give me some leverage. So the only reason I mention that to you is because Trump got more out of that limited strike as it reverberated around the world because of what? Because it said to the world that when something bad happened that the United States has national interest in, the president is willing to pull a trigger, even though it was, as Jim accurately said, proportional and limited. It sent a message, and it strengthens our diplomats. It strengthens our hand dealing with North Korea. It strengthens our hand dealing with Iran. So you, you can't be so paralyzed by the fear of adverse consequence, which I think is what happened to our previous president, that you're not willing to use force at times, even on a proportional basis. And I totally agree with Jim. Militarily, not much accomplished. Why? Because I can tell you for a fact that the majority of the air bombing in Syria is done by the Russians. And they have been pummeling the civilian populations with a vengeance ever since. They actually are doubling their campaign of air bombing and it's targeting on civilians and they're using their deep penetration bombs to go down and blow up hospitals that are buried under the ground. War crime. When you systematically and purposely bomb civilians, that is a war crime. And when you take out hospitals, that is a war crime. And they are doing that, and they're doing it as a reaction to what the president has done. So militarily, we haven't really accomplished much, but we, I, think we've, I think the Russians probably suspected that Assad was reckless in using sarin gas against his people. They be, he became a world pariah. The Russians were humiliated and embarrassed because they are enabling Assad to be sure. And that is why they're reacting so strongly to make certain that everybody in Syria understands that they are the dominating force there. So not much gained militarily from it. I think we likely have stopped Assad from using sarin gas again, because I don't think the Russians would permit him to do it. But I do think it, it, it has helped us diplomatically and maybe politically in other places in the world. So, so the, the general raised Russia, and I was going to ask about this. So let's turn to this right now. Uh, we could spend an entire program focused on how to deal with, with Russia. But let's just scratch the surface with this. Through what lens, Admiral, especially as somebody who has dealt with the Russians the way you've dealt with them in NATO, should what lens, through what lens should the administration approach dealing with Russia? Are they enemy, adversary, rival, competitor, partner? What's the approach? First of all, I will say that you need to think about Russia kind of from the inside out when you're trying to understand it. And what I mean by that is, at the end of the day, Putin is a domestic politician, and a lot of his activity 
is less geostrategically driven and more for domestic consumption. Think about how Russia views its leaders over history, right? They kind of roll the cosmic dice. One time they get Ivan the Great. He opens Russia to Europe. The next time they get, excuse me, they get Peter the Great. The next time they get Ivan the Terrible. One time they get Stalin. The next time they get a Gorbachev. Those dice have landed on Vladimir Putin, and he is driven by his need to dominate Russian domestic politics, and that means he has to portray himself as the strong man, shirt off, on the horse, the dominant figure. That's Russian culture, so understand that. Secondly, Russia is highly sensitive about the way in which they perceive they have been encircled at the end of the Cold War. Obviously, that's a flawed narrative, but you need to put yourself in their shoes and understand it. That means that there's hypersensitivity to activity around their borders that pulls nations at play like Ukraine toward transatlantic. That's what led to the invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. So, the next layer after you're done understanding Russia itself is that near abroad, as it's called, and the Russian sensitivity there. And thirdly, Russia sees itself as a, a global actor, as a serious power. They crave respect. And that's why they're willing to engage in these, I would argue, misadventures like Syria. Uh, General Keene is absolutely right that I would love to have seen the conversation when Vladimir Putin was briefed on the use of chemical weapons by Assad, his puppet. Um, absolute fury and just locking down Assad. The point is Russia, when you get outside that near abroad, is all about attaining a seat at the table equal to the United States, cutting the deal. That's what they're driving for. So where does that leave us? The approach we should take with Russia, if we understand those sort of three layers, is that we have to confront Russia when their behavior fails international norms so dramatically. You know, the Russians have this saying that when you want to probe, use a bayonet. When you encounter mush, keep going. If you hit steel, withdraw. We have to confront Russia in things like Syria in Ukraine about their intrusion into our electoral process. On the other hand, we don't want to stumble backward into a full-blown Cold War. We should try and find where we can zones of cooperation, counterterrorism, counter-narcotics, counter-piracy, perhaps the Arctic, maybe arms control, maybe missile defense. There are zones we can work with Russia on. So, to summarize, if you understand Russia, you understand they look for strength in an opponent. Therefore, you confront where you must, you cooperate where you can, you have a transactional relationship, and you understand at the center of it is Vladimir Putin as a personality and a politician. Okay, very good. Um, General, let's come to a, a country that both of you mentioned in your answers to the first question, which is Iran. Um, uh, the president ran on a platform of the need to destroy ISIS. 
But lurking behind this was a need to counter and roll back Iran in the region. How do you do that? What's the best way to do this? And how do you blend that with the, with the first order of business of destroying ISIS? Yeah, sure. Um, let me just add on to something Jim said here about Russia. Uh, I think one of the things I've been so encouraged by because of so much hype in the media about all this Russian and Trump business and, and the mysterious, mysteriously why the president never ever said a negative thing about Vladimir Putin when he's the world's number one thug and killer. And most of, most of the world would agree with that, at least you know, democratic people in the world would. But I, I think that's been largely resolved. And because the administration has fundamentally changed its policy dealing with Russia as it pertains to the previous administration. Barack Obama was obsessed with diplomacy and engagement. And, and, I, and I think it, it's, it's a right avenue, but don't do it to a fault. And we did it to a fault. This administration is willing to engage, use diplomacy, but they're willing to confront. And they have proven that already. When Tillerson was in Moscow, and Lavrov was sitting next to him in front of the Russian media and the international media after he had met with Putin, he said this, and it's almost, it's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close. He said, the relationship we have with Russia is, is at a very low point, and maybe one of the all-time low points. And he said, Russia is enabling Assad, who's a war criminal, to kill his own people, and that's unacceptable. Russia is a signatory to the Minsk Accords on Ukraine. And as a result of that, they're supposed to withdraw their separatist forces and withdraw their military capabilities. And he says this, this is a quote. And he says, until such time as that happens, this relationship will never improve, quote, unquote. And then the third thing is he called them out for meddling in the US election. So believe me, this, is changing in terms of our ability to deal with Russia. The United States under President Trump, despite the mysterious reason why he, I, I, I will, I'll speculate this, because he's a negotiator and he's got huge social interpersonal skills and I saw that up front. I think he believes he didn't want to say anything to, that would damage the first encounter that he would have with Putin, because he believes in his own skill sets. But world events came and changed all of that. And we are where we are. And he has also said that Russia's behavior is unacceptable. So policy of the United States has changed. And I, I agree with Jim totally on a strategic buffer that Russia always wants to have in its West. That's what Stalin post-World War II was all about, preventing, you know, there was a Frenchman that came and burned Moscow in the 19th century, and a German got within 30 miles of it. And that damn thing drives these people. You may not think that that's a big deal, but they lost 25 million people in World War II. And it is a big deal if you're sitting there strategically thinking about your enemy. The other enemy they have is to the south, and it's called radical Islam. That's why they went into Afghanistan in 1980. And of course, they were humiliated, humiliated by that defeat. In, in terms of Iran, I would say the same thing is gonna happen with the Iranians and this administration, I think, has got 
about right. You know, actions will always speak louder than words. But Iran did a ballistic missile test, and immediately the, the president sanctioned them. And I think he is saying, and, and they, the words they used went beyond the ballistic missile testing. They're holding Iran accountable. What I thought should always have been the imprimatur to the discussions over denuclear, making sure Iran never gets a nuclear weapon. And that is put Iranians' behavior on the table since the, the Islamic Republic of Iran was formed in 1980 and how they've used their, their proxies, it's a brilliant strategy, as fighters and as terrorists to dominate countries in the Middle East. Their strategic objective is to dominate the Middle East and push the United States out of it and destroy the state of Israel. They say this every single year. But we never hold them accountable. They've been killing us for 35 years, Americans. I've done congressional testimony on it and painstakingly laid out all the hundreds and hundreds of people that they've killed doing this. And it's absolutely remarkable. We all you know, forget this. But the fact of the matter is, that has been their strategy. And no president, Republican or Democrat, because they use proxies as fighters and terrorists, has ever held them accountable. I mean, Reagan pulled out of Lebanon. You could argue that was a good thing to do, fine. We, we pulled our forces out of Saudi Arabia after they blew up our, our Air Force barracks. In Lebanon, they blew up our Marine barracks, and they blew up our embassy, and they blew up our embassy annex. And then the next year, they blew up the Kuwaiti embassy. These are all US properties that killed hundreds and hundreds of people. But they have had their way with American presidents. And then the last president negotiated a nuclear deal, which I believe provides them a pathway to a nuclear weapon, which I think is an absurdity and the irony of it, because the idea was not to let them have a nuclear weapon, I thought. But what we never did is put on the table their behavior for 35 years has got to be a factor, because more than a nuclear weapon is their strategic objective to dominate the Middle East. That is their number one priority. The nuclear weapon is to preserve the regime. Their primary objective is the domination of the Middle East. That is the behavior we have to hold accountable. This president and his team said, over a simple issue of ballistic missile testing, it was music to my ears that we are going to hold Iran's behavior in the Middle East accountable. And we are willing to confront them as they can continue to use provocation to dominate the countries in the Middle East. Now, those are words. And we've heard a lot of words in the past. We'll see if there's action that's followed up by those words. But I am hopeful. So, Admiral, if, if, if you were asked how to translate these words into action, what would your advice be? Well, I'll come to that in a minute. But first, I want to just pick up a thread of what uh, Jack said, which is, and I'm, I'm required to do this because I'm Greek-American, you need to look back 2,500 years at the Persian Empire. Because you can drop a plumb line from the Persians and their imperial reach and the ambition they have today. Google the Persian Empire and look at what it encompassed. Look at the stories of Cyrus the Magnificent, Darius the Great. Look at those battle flags. Look at the Iranian flag today. Iran views itself as an imperial power. And that empire that they seek stretches from the Mediterranean to India and beyond. 
And we need to understand that. We need to get out of this mentality that somehow Iran is this mid-sized power. They don't see themselves that way. There's an imperial DNA in the Persians, and it threatens Israel, above all, our principal ally, but it also threatens global security, commerce, and the underpinnings of our economy. So I just want to second that piece of it. So the real question is, yeah, okay, Admiral, okay, General, so we get it, they're bad, what do we do about it? So I would start with, as always, with the alliances in the region. And that means, first and foremost, centerpiece is Israel. Israel has not only enormous skin in the game against this Persian-Iranian empire, but it also has enormous connectivity in the region, in intelligence, in cyber, in connectivity, in real weapons capability. So you put Israel there. Then you want to build the Sunni network around it. So what we ought to be doing, my view, is encouraging in every way we can our mill-to-mill, military-to-military relationships with the Sunni states. And General Slant Secretary Mattis will be ideal at this. But build those networks, the Saudis, the Gulf states, um, the Egyptians, the Jordanians. These are powerful allies to have in the region. And I would add the Kurds to this. I think they're a force for good in the region. We need to figure out, as the general says, how we square the circle with Turkey on this. But that network of alliances is very important. Thirdly, get NATO into the game. Force them into it. Um, despite the frustrations and the agony and the difficulties we experienced, and I did them firsthand as the commander of Afghanistan with four great generals working for me over the four years, NATO, for all its frustrations, can be helpful. It's an enormously capable alliance. So think about how to get them into this fight against Iran, because they ought to understand it. Um, fourth and fifth, and I won't belabor this, fourth, I'd say, is cyber. Cyber could be an enormous component in how we circle and engage. And fifth is special forces, intelligence, covert activities. All that has to be underpinned by strong, capable, overt military capability in the Arabian Gulf, in and around the waters, in our bases. That's the bedrock of the whole thing, is real deterrence. Deterrence, in the end, is capability and credibility. We haven't had those two line up in a while. I'm hopeful we've got a shot at it. That would be my prescription for Iran. Thank you. That was excellent. Thank you. Um, let me ask about one piece of what uh, the Admiral just mentioned, and that is this growing alignment between Israel and Sunni Arab states. A uh, Wall Street Journal columnist this weekend, uh, Yaroslav Trofimov, actually wrote a column in which he determined this an alliance between Israel and Sunni Arab states, a word that you know, when, when you, it sort of boggles the mind even to use in this, um, in this historical context. Do you think there is the makings of a serious relationship here? And how does this, in practice, advance what we want to accomplish well, in first, this part of the world? First of all, there already is some pretty serious relationships. Yeah. That, that's been going on for some time. It's just, it, they're not, just not public. So, and 
I, I can guarantee you if uh, Israel was, was going to conduct a military operation against Iran as we thought they may, there would probably be some fairly serious cooperation in that endeavor from the Sunni Arabs. You know, I think the alliance in the Middle East is crucial, you know, to stand up against the Iranians. And I would go so far as to say we could actually think about formalizing it. And, and you know, the most successful political military alliance we, we've ever had is, is NATO, which, Jim, isn't that title that they give the guy that runs NATO kind of interesting? They call him these the Supreme... Allied commander. It's a marvelous title. You can't find it anyplace else. You know? And the really, the really good news is that there's no height requirement for it. Yeah. Whatever it is, you get about 10 feet tall when you get that title, that's for sure. But, you know, whether that can actually happen or not, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I think it, it would send a huge message because it is, it is all about forming an alliance against them you know, so you have, it's political, diplomatic, economic, it's all, of the, it's all of those things. Israel, certainly, their stability and security is absolutely tied to the Sunni Arabs. They know that. And that's why they've been so concerned about Iran's aggression. What you should know is that there is a bona fide Russian-Iranian alliance that has been struck, and it's, it's really quite considerable. They are on, the Russians are on the ground with the Iranians in Syria conducting counterinsurgency strategy to win over the people in some of the towns and villages. Hold on to that thought for a second. The most significant ground force in Syria is no longer the Syrian army. It's the Iranians. It's Hezbollah by the thousands, Iraqi Shia militia, excuse me, the, the uh, Iranian uh, Special Republican Guard Force and also they have conventional brigades for the first time ever deployed outside of Iran. They've never, ever deployed them. They've always used fighters from other place. And the Russians are aligned with them. It was the Iranians that went to Moscow in 2015, in February, and then in, in late spring, Qasim Soleimani, who's the head of the Quds Force, and convinced the Russians that the Syrian opposition forces were in closing on the Alawite enclave and would risk the regime's survival in a way that had not happened since 2011. On the second visit, they spooked Putin to the point where he agreed to conduct a military intervention in September of that year. Since then, they have formed a bona fide political and military alliance, and they are working in interesting ways together. They, the Russians want a, a navy base in Yemen. And where, when you look at where Yemen is on the map, when you travel west out of that navy base, you enter the bridge to the Suez Canal. The Russians are assisting al-Sisi. They're gonna build four nuclear power plants, as I mentioned, and they're assisting him in the desert, in the Sinai, fighting ISIS. The Russians are interested in influencing shipping and strategically the Suez Canal. They have a friend who's already influencing the Persian Gulf and the Straits of Hormuz and the Iranians. This is a serious military alliance. The Russians are assisting the Iranians uh, 
who are influenced in the government of Iraq. And they have significant influence. And the government of Iraq has already made a public statement. When the war is over, they don't want the Americans to stay. And that would be a huge mistake if, if that took place. So dealing with the Iranians, we also have to recognize what I'm adding to the conversation is that we're also dealing with the Russians in the Middle East. And the Russians are looking in the Middle East to be the most to replace the United States as the most influential country from out of the region who influences the political, diplomatic, and economic and military situation in the Middle East. And they are well on their way to doing that. And that is why I was also so delighted that the Trump administration, who understands very well about Russian intervention in the Middle East, is going to the Middle East to push back on it. And when you're thinking about Iran, what I want you to think about is now you have to think about the Russian alliance with the Iranians because they are supporting all of their endeavors in the Middle East and vice versa. And we need to push, push back on it. And I agree with Jim, the secret to it is we have to have alliances to do it. Israel will be a part of it, unofficially. They'll, they'll be a part of it. They already are a part of it. And the intelligence sharing that, that's going on so we're way beyond where we used to be with the Sunni Arabs and, and the Israelis. Can I just add one point, sure. uh, agreeing with everything? Um, the way Putin is going at this is really uh, reaching back to the Cold War Soviet Union, which had bases in Yemen. They operated uh, naval bases at Socotra all along that region. They had Egypt as a client state. This is right out of the playbook of Putin, which is to regenerate the Soviet Union, the loss of which he has described as the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Really, I thought it was the Holocaust or maybe the Second World War, the First World War. No, it was the collapse of the Soviet Union. He is trying to rebuild this, and he sees vulnerability and nature abhors a vacuum. And as the United States in the last administration tried to disengage and walk away from this region, that vacuum opened for Vladimir Putin. Let me just add a couple of things so you may not realize it. But the Russians are very cleverly involved. They've been putting pressure on the Emiratis in Yemen, trying to mediate a deal and separate them from Saudi Arabia. And it's pretty, pretty cleverly done. And they're actually making, making some progress on it. The, so you know, the, the famine, there's 28 million people who live in Yemen. There's 17 million people that have a famine situation in central Yemen and northwest Yemen. 17 million people because of this war. In Libya, the Russians, there's a UN-sponsored government that we're supporting in Libya. Remember, Libya is a failed state. The, Radical Islamists took it over. Um, we defeated Gaddafi. The only, the only foreign policy mistake that Obama has ever admitted to, and he's admitted to it three times, is this one. When that, when that moderately elected government, Islamic government of Libya, the best answer you could possibly have gotten after deposing Gaddafi, wanted help to build an effective security force to put down the radicals, we said no. We, all he wanted us to help train his people so they could take, provide what governments have to do is protect their people. 
It was the radicals, remember, that burned our consulate down, killed our ambassador, and then a year later drove us out of the country. The UN-sponsored government that we're backing is one thing. The Russians, the Emiratis, hold on to this thought, the Egyptians are backing an alternative, and his name is General Haftar, and also our Ansar al-Sharia, who are the guys that killed our ambassador and burned down our consulate and drove us out of the country. So the Russians are involved in Libya, and what they want in Libya is not too surprising. Not only do they want influence, but they want a base. And so they are moving in the Middle East rather dramatically, and it's, it, it's largely unreported in terms of what is actually happening. Well, look, so far this has been an absolute masterclass in strategic thinking about the Middle East. Um, let me just close with one question to each of you. It's the last question that we asked our Middle Eastern friends. Um, if you had an elevator ride up Trump Tower with the president, up to his penthouse suite, and just the two of you, you could tell him something about the Middle East or about national security more generally. What would you tell President Trump? General, let's start with you, then we'll go to Admiral Stavridis. Yeah, I'll tell you what I did tell him. I mean, um, I mean, I, I believe, you know, that, that America is, is, is an extraordinarily gifted country. I mean, we, we, we're, we're a product of the rest of the world, and we're a, micro, a small microcosm of the world, and as a result of it, people come to this country from all over the world, and they, they bring such energy and passion to make their own lives better um, that we've developed this ex extraordinary, exceptional country. And these brilliant founding fathers of ours that devised this constitution and set, set us on this path to liberty that we're the oldest democracy in the world and we're the most envied. And, and I think the mantle of leadership fell to us, not something we sought, but something happened to us as a result of World War II because we were the most prosperous nation. We built this incredible industrial base and we could go out and defeat the most, the, literally the most powerful and most capable military in the world, which was the German machine. And it, to be frank about it, it was better than, than what we had, but we defeated it. And some of that had to do with political will and, and great soldiers we had and, and airmen and seamen and the rest of it. But the mantle leadership fell to us as a result of that. And we've been stepping up on the world stage, Democratic or Republican presidents, for all of these generations, trying to help the world achieve some degree of stability and security. And the byproduct has always been economic prosperity. We have accepted that leadership role. And that was my message to the president. I said, return America to its traditional and historical global leadership world where we're an advocate for stability and security and the world will prosper as a result of it. That was my message. Admiral, what would you say to the president? Well, um, like the general, I spent an hour uh, being interviewed for a position. On December 8th, I went to Trump Tower. I rolled 
the golden elevator. It doesn't go to a penthouse suite. It goes to his office. At least the terminus of my ride was in his office. And so I sat there with uh, Reince Priebus to my right and uh, Steve Bannon to my left and President-elect Trump across the table from me. And we spent an hour in a conversation much like this, going kind of around the world. And I agree completely with General Keene, and I tried to make that same point that we have a leadership role. Because you'll recall, on December 8th, candidate Trump's message was not that. It was, come home, make America great. I think what we've seen since then is what I'll call the reset of reality. And I think it's both the philosophical underpinnings that the general makes, but it's also the reality of the world. We may not be interested in the world, but the world is interested in us, and we cannot avoid it. So on the Middle East, what I would say to him, because that was your question, I would say we have to stand with Israel. Israel is a democracy. They share our values. They have incredible military capability in cyber, in special operations, in missile defense, in conduct of urban operations. They are a strong, capable, reliable partner to us. Whatever we do in the Middle East, we need to build it around the state of Israel. That would be the specific point, adding to the general philosophical one General Keene made so much better than I did. Thank you for having me here, and thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, Please join me in thanking Admiral James Stavridis and General Jack Keane for this outstanding discussion. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.